imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal with your host, Kevin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot in the Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact. We are all up in your face. It is time for the one, the only... Protonic reversal. Holy crap, everybody. Can I just start off this episode by by doing... I guess I just did. (laughs) Wow. Bucket list guest for me, Mr. Jerry Casali of Devo. Periodic Table of the Elements, Devo. One of the defining bands for my personality and part of the ethos of this show, Devo. I'm over the moon. No two ways about it. For those just joining the show for the first time, RadioNeutron.com for the archives. Uh, this is, well, usually Thursdays, 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. These days, almost all the time. And there is a Patreon for folks that want to get episodes earlier. Patreon.com slash Protonic Reversal. you hear all about that later. Nobody cares about any of that. Let's just get to Jerry Casale. Uh, let's hear, uh, let's have a little freedom of choice first.
I got a little freedom of choice for you. A little choice action by some young up-and-comers known as uh, Devo, or Devo. Going to go with the correct pronunciation. <laughs> and with us now, we have none other than uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Jerry Casale. Welcome to the show, sir. Hi there. How are you doing? Fantastic. So de-evolution is indubitably real. It is without question. We are living in it. We are suffering in it. Uh, yeah. How does it feel to be fundamentally right about everything and have everything be more depressing than you ever possibly could imagine? <laughs> well, yeah. Look, we weren't mean-spirited, and we didn't want to be right, but we turned out to be canaries in a coal mine, and uh, this isn't funny. <laughs> this is real, Devo. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I like black humor, but this is <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Richard Pryor's black humor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> don't get me wrong i'm fine with the blacks uh yeah it's it's mind-blowing i mean it's and something that's been a unifying thing with all these shows no matter who i talk to whether the artist is uh world-renowned such as yourself or uh, a struggling indie artist everyone's in this same horrifying nightmare roller coaster together right now with uh not only not only nobody we'd be better off with nobody at the wheel uh than, than who we actually have uh, Boy, that's for sure. So, because you know what? If nobody's at the wheel, then the boat has a chance of missing the rocks. But when you've got somebody steering it into the rocks on purpose, it's a percentage game. Really, well, <laughs> you know, he might as well be um, uh, a member of ISIS uh, flying into uh, the trade center. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, as the kids say, a harsh toke, to say the least. Hoo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> wow, it, this is amazing. It's like you couldn't ask for a, a more kind of, I don't know, suicidal Western culture death wish than to have uh, number 45 at the helm as things fall apart. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it, it's it, it's interesting to see folks of a uh, of who consider themselves critically thinking minded kind of look back on the bush years with some sort of yearning uh, because <laughs> things have gotten that bad it's like wow really now, how slow is that <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> when, uh, that, when that <laughs> starts looking good you know you're in trouble <laughs> right it gets rough business to say the least so i mean i and those those ideas have always been present with the heart of Devo. And again, I, I'm saying D Devo because I believe that's how you're meant to say it, right? Yeah, well, you know what was funny is when it became a contraction for de-evolution and when it migrated from being a um, an art literary concept to musical application, Yes. as soon as we left the little hearth of uh, Akron, Ohio, and started uh, putting out our, our, our independent singles, suddenly we didn't have control of anything. You know, you don't have control of anything once you're out there in the world. And so when we got to California in the summer of 1977, everybody was going, Devo! Devo! <laughs> and we went, what? It's Devo. But then, but then we thought, then we realized, no, they are determining what Devo is. Right. And saying it like that, which made it more kind of crass and low, 
was so much better than <laughs> sounded pretentiously like some European art movement. Right. So we just went with Devo after that. Like, yeah, we're Devo. <laughs> in, in the true sense of Americanization and that they could take some uh, lovely, beautiful, melodious sounding name and then truncate it down to something vulgar. <laughs> Right. <laughs> at Ellis that's Island or whatnot, yeah. <laughs> that's America. And it, it's fascinating as well, and I don't want to go over it too much in depth because I really want to try to cover some stuff with you that has not been covered, but just the idea that the the term Devo could was used as a term of derision by uh, by folks that maybe we were called out and through being cool uh, <laughs> yeah. for, uh, you know, y- young deviants, freaks, nerds, weirdos, punks, such as myself, just as, as a short term, uh, post whip it, of course, yeah. term of, uh, I guess, name calling, I guess I'm trying to think of a more. Well, yeah, when, <laughs> yeah. 40 years ago when fans would write letters, you know, and mail letters and you would get fan mail. I can't tell you, and we would read it, actually. You know, that that was us, right? We, <laughs> we were like, you know, nerds, and we were experimental, and we were serious, and so we actually read the, the mail. And I can't tell you how many stories were just identical about, hey, you, you know, liking you got me beat up in the 11th grade. <laughs> I'm sending Don't you my worry. dental bill. <laughs> Yeah, over and over and over. Like if a kid had a short haircut or if a kid was, uh, you know, wearing like a uh, a kind of like magenta or fuchsia T-shirt, he got screamed at and the epitaph was Devo. Hey, Devo! He just got pointed at. So all the disenfranchised people became labeled as Devo. And, uh, of course, it was meant, as uh, many things yelled at by bullies, as something to to marginalize and make people feel small. But, Correct. <laughs> f- but folks that, you know, were called it almost, to a certain degree, for, uh, for a lot of us, it came more of like a rallying cry, right? And it was like, well, why not? Okay, sure. We, let's, uh, we, we're, we're all Devo, you know? And, and exactly. It, it, it became a badge of courage. <laughs> yeah. And it's something where culture has changed and in a certain degree some people claim that nerd culture is ascendant with you know the the, the major motion pictures action pictures you know instead of being uh Arnold Schwarzenegger or uh Sylvester Stallone running around shooting terrorists it's it's Marvel movies and Batman sure. and things along those lines and that nerd culture has been mainlined but that said right. I feel like what Devo was doing not just musically but the entire approach had a much different set of stakes to it and I guess where I'm driving with it is it that the fact that it started almost as a collective and art movement kind of mindset it seemed to maintain that as it went on. And that's, again, that's only coming from the outside. And don't worry, there's a question here eventually. So <laughs> do you feel that... No, I get it. I get it. Yeah, do you... They I mean, weren't... Well, look, you know what happens to anybody that enters the arena of pop, pop culture is you have to expect 
being trivialized. And that was true 40 years ago. And today it's 10 times as true. And then there's, because of digital culture, there's the online trolls, things we didn't have actually. We had time to disseminate our message. message. We had time to develop. Um, we had time for people to actually, you know, contemplate and digest what we were doing because we still had the album format where music was taken seriously when an artist put out a, a, a vinyl LP, the sequencing and everything else was way thought out because it had to be, because this was a serious piece of creativity, of content that you, you know, that cost a lot of money actually to make. <laughs> right, and time, investment <laughs> and, of time and money as well. And, uh, and uh, and so everything was was seriously thought out. So when an artist put out something, if you like one of the songs on the record, chances are you were going to like six or seven of them because it was a cohesive body of work. It wasn't just some like throwaway where you know the record company spends a quarter of a million dollars on one track and a big name producer right. to make it sound good, and then the rest uh, that didn't happen. So, and yeah, like, you know, it wasn't the same level of engagement as, and again, I don't know anybody in the band, like the waitresses or something where, you know, there, there's, even though there might be a, right, 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 exactly. And, and that's, that's not to denigrate any of their creative work, but to say that it was coming from a, a far different place with artistic intent, which I think that's something that certainly artists I talk to on this show a lot uh, is, is a very is a correlating factor. But the fact that you guys got in with a song, like you you broke into the mainstream, and of course everybody immediately wants you to do exactly the same thing over again. So the thing that made it interesting in the first place, not at all, uh, is is something that you know. The, oh, why don't you just write ten more of those and make your next record? <laughs> and that didn't seem like that oh, was yeah. on the game plan for you oh, guys. Believe me, we were um... We paid the price for not just recreating with it, you know. But if, but if anybody had been paying attention, if you play Are We Not Men, the first record, and then Duty Now for the Future, and then Freedom of Choice, and then New Traditionalists, and then Oh No, It's Devo, each one is different. Right. Each one represented our next kind of um, um, point of development as artists where we're, we're not interested in keeping up the same thing we we had new excitement new interests and new ideas and a different statement we wanted to make the and the production values are, are very different the sounds are very different of course you guys were experimenting with different types of synths and it wasn't like it is today it's hard to describe i hate doing i feel like i should have a kids these days segment and i don't want to but i keep having to explain things that uh, for folks that have been around for a while are obvious but you couldn't just download a, a pack of, you know, 200 synth sounds and start cycling through them for your TikTok video or whatever along Certainly those lines. Not. Certainly not. <laughs> there was a yeah. lot of, uh, honest to goodness, pioneering with different types of, of equipment that I'm sure, I'm sure it always worked exactly the way it was meant to out of the box immediately the way you wanted it to. <laughs> <laughs> we spent so much time with tedious... Um, you know, new products and technology that were really hard to deal with and all the analog stuff. And, 
the early sequencers from Roland that had a kind of two or three hundredths of a millisecond delay so that no matter what a great musician you were, you felt it being behind the beat. <laughs> <laughs> Alan's giving you like a dirty look and like, hey, it's not me, it's the keyboard. Oh, sure so. it is. Because <laughs> Alan was a human veteran. Uh, an incredible drummer and someone that has been influential in very interesting ways yeah. uh, for a lot of different music that maybe people wouldn't expect, which actually is something that I wanted to talk about. Because when I think about, uh, when, you, when you make the list of, you know, who are your favorite players of this, of this, you know, this list, favorite bass players, favorite drummers, etc. Uh, Alan, for sure, is one of my favorite drummers. I actually... I think Bob's like one of my favorite guitar players. Some of the stuff he came up with on guitar like blew my mind. And I would sit here and try to rip it off, fail utterly, and come up with my own awesome stuff <laughs> to do it. And because people didn't consider Devo, or the mainstream folks wouldn't consider Devo a traditional rock band, they didn't see it in that context. And I think it kind of does a disservice to the playing for both of those guys. Well, sure, because they weren't flashy. They were all business. And... Uh... They are, they, are, they are favorites among musicians who understand how hard it is to do what they did. Right. You know? and, and, yeah, the people don't get it because they want to see Tommy Lee. <laughs> and, and it's fantastic. I mean, it, it speaks to the credit of Josh Freese, too, as a almost drummer chameleon. He is a chameleon. He's, he's amazing that way. He's amazing. Because he can do that, he can do the Allen thing, and then he can also uh, sit right in with with the replacements. He can sit in with Nine Inch Nails, and it all it sounds it works for all. What's of that it. famous Woody Allen movie, uh, Zelig? Yeah, yeah, one of the only movies that didn't involve him having sex with underage girls. Um, <laughs> Got to stay on brand. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, he's Zelig. Z- yeah, Josh Freeze is Zelig. <laughs> He takes on the persona of whatever style of music he's playing. He embodies it. He doesn't. He's not like a studio session guy right. that kind of distills it down. Oh, you want that? I'll do an, an ish version of it. He becomes it. He he does it like a method actor. How did you end up uh, hooking up with Josh Freese? Actually, actually, that was my brother Bob Casali's uh, doing. He um. He worked with the Vandals. Oh, you know, see, I had forgotten that he played with the Vandals because that's another. <laughs> he just fits right in with the music. It sits it's right. so nicely. That's where he started. And when Alan left Devo, and we were in this, you know, strange limbo and hiatus, Bob started talking about um, Josh. And we never really got an opportunity to do anything until the early 90s with Josh. And so as soon as we were, uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, you know, allowed us to be active again because he was refusing to play live shows. He was refusing to do records, refusing to do everything. And so when we played um, Lollapalooza and the uh, closing ceremony of the... um, uh, Sundance Film Festival, there was Josh Bruce. And after two gigs, it's like I didn't want anybody else. That said, so of the, I was lucky enough to see you, I think, four times. And I, 
I wasn't actually aware that it wasn't Alan at the time because <laughs> different times, right? Now there's this instant awareness. Oh, oh, you didn't see that tweet? You didn't see that Snapchat? Okay, dude, I get it. But yeah, I, I had no idea. I was just like, oh man, they sound great. You know, because I was yeah. with, that was, well, that was the La Palooza was with the Ramones played as well. Oh, right. That one. Yes. And uh, Melvin's played a bunch of stuff I didn't care about. Soundgarden played. Uh, right. Metallica. That was the, right. what's funny about that is some people term that the sellout Lollapalooza, <laughs> which is like, they got Devo. <laughs> sellout is that going to be? What, what what made that sellout? I, I, I the, the rationale was specious at best. Just because it sold out? It sold out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can you talk, uh, we, we touched upon, I'm not going to make you do a moratorium of, of every record, but Duty Now for the Future uh, has is a record that, in my mind, its estimation has grown over the years, uh, mm-hmm. but very uh, austere production, very, very cold uh, production as a listener that kind of put me off at first. Like I don't, I was very unhappy. Can, uh, can you, yeah, can you speak to that record a little bit? Yeah, well, those songs deserved a much better recording experience. Those songs live, some of them are still to this day the ones where the audience, you know, loses it, like Smart Patrol DNA. We're talking about major, huge rock songs. Right, yeah, they rip. They rip hard, and when you play them live, it is And that's the way they should have been recorded so that they captured that energy. But Ken Scott was incapable of that. And Ken Scott was a a bad choice. So how do you feel about the legacy of that record? Do you feel, because some people kind of consider it the lost Devo record, which I'm like, I don't know how lost it could be because... It's, 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 it's frustrating because those songs live really were explosive and moved the audience. Right. And as you said, the production is so kind of anal. Folks, not putting down in. No, no, it's it's. Hey, if, if that's your thing, good on but you. But anal retentive, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's what we're talking. About. Right, and it's it's. For me, my pathway into it was was just it. T- it took a while. It took me. It took me being a an older man to be like, you know what? These songs are actually really good. Like, I don't know why did yeah. I why did I not like this? And yeah. I, it's the production that made you not like it. I guarantee it. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly not the songs. I mean, especially because there's been live records uh, of of you guys and just having seen you guys, like, God, these songs are awesome. I should, like, check that record back out. Uh, so first record, I think you, you've, you've gone over a lot with by the time you actually finally recorded a record, uh, which ended up being, you know, I think you were, you were angling for Bowie, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we had written 50 songs before we got to record a record, and we had a a plan in place to produce the first record with David Bowie, and then those plans, uh, you know, like they say, the best laid plans of mice and men. He he just kept delaying it because he had so many things going on in his career, and he started to branch out into feature films. That's right. And so he he said, "Listen, I understand why you can't wait any longer because I felt we were missing our moment." Because we had, we were part of the zeitgeist. We were around at the right. same time in in Akron, right? Unfortunately, as the Ramones and Blondie and the Talking Heads were in New York, right? Right. 
they weren't ahead of us. We were doing the same thing, but we were unsung and unknown. And now, right at that time that we're talking to Bowie, which is like, it starts in September of 77. From September to December, all these bands re- released their first records. Right. It, it was all kind of happening around the same time. Like you said, it was like a zeitgeist moment. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to get left behind. Pretty, <laughs> You've been doing it for a while. <laughs> we're going to look like we're imitating these people or right. something. You know, that, yeah, That's yeah. how the people are going to think of us. we got to do something now. You know, so and I told him that, and he he goes okay, he goes I want you to fly to New York and meet Brian, you know Brian Eno, and mm-hmm. and he had worked with him on Low and a number of things, and and of course we revered Brian Eno from Roxy Music days, and then his like Here Come the Warm Jets record and awesome stuff, yeah, and timeless still holds up to this Brian time. Eno, you know, yeah. and so we went to New York and we met him and. He was ready to go right away, and he was ready to use the same studio that he and David had used in, outside of Cologne, Germany, with Connie Plunk, and uh, you know the famous quote crop rock producer that worked with Khan and many others. Mm-hmm. And so we jumped at that. You know, we were off to Germany in the winter. <laughs> yeah, had you guys, had you guys ever been abroad before at that point? No. Wow. <laughs> I love a first trip. <laughs> no, I, I had really never been out of Ohio except Detroit, Michigan, a couple times before we went to California in the summer of '77. So yeah, we I'd never been to Europe at all. How was that experience as far as recording the record? I mean, obviously you were more than ready to record the record at that point. You had. Well, in a way, it was, you know, in retrospect, it was really good because, you know, we get picked up at the Cologne Airport by this guy that looks like he should have a role in Conan the Barbarian. (laughs) And he's got, you know, the long hippie hair, the beard, the white fur coat, no shirt on underneath, and necklaces and chains. Fantastic. And, you know, like, uh, wide whale corduroy flare pants and brown boots. And we're thinking, this guy is Devo. Like, this <laughs> He's personifying guy, it, yeah. This is what we make fun of. On a, on a large scale level. And we think, oh shit, we're, we're in trouble. And... And, of course, we jump into his big Mercedes, and he drives, you know, at 90, 100 miles an hour on the Autobahn, but, like, a full 45 minutes out of Cologne into some godforsaken, you know, rural, isolated place. And you're like, are we going to make a record? You're going to murder us. What's happening here? (laughs) And we're stuck in some, you know, bed and breakfast with no central heating and we have to sleep under huge down comforters, and he comes to pick us up in the morning, and he takes us to his farmhouse, and he lives in the farmhouse with his wife and son, and they make these huge German breakfasts that seem like a joke. I mean, like a a dinner table full of, of like, um, processed cut meats and loaves of homemade bread and cheese 
And then the eggs come in the kava. The kava, kava, so this chocolate stuff you spread on toast. How and, Teutonic. And <laughs> in a barn across from his house. And, you know, it's very rustic and very crude. And But, of course, the equipment inside is state-of-the-art. Total state-of-the-art. And then Brian Eno shows up. And, of course, he's in his Zen phase. And his hair is cut short. And he's got a little V-neck sweater and, a, mm-hmm. you know, a button-down, like, English brogue shirt on, you know, and brown corduroy pants and little slippers. And he's got his deck of uh, oblique strategy cards that we have to start our sessions with. <laughs> I was going to ask you about oblique strategies, if he had already oh, – yeah. was, was still developing that at that point or – did you remember? He, no, he, he had developed it. Do you remember any of the specific cards that came up <laughs> during the session? All I remember is here's Devo that had this, you know, brutalist industrial aesthetic and looked askance at anything that sniffed of far fetched hippiedom. <laughs> right. Transcendent yeah, yeah. thought, you know. We were debunkers. That's what we were. And uh, my God, my dog is. What's wrong, Vito? I don't want to move the camera around, but I'm going to let her out. Hold on one second. Okay, that's fine. Sounds good. We're live with Mr. Jerry Casali of the legendary band Devo. Also, we're live with Jerry Casali's dog, who wants to be let out. As most dogs eventually do want to be let out. Well, she's a sad dog. She's. uh, She's a 70-pound Labradoodle, sweet, very sweet, but she developed arthritis. Ooh. She's only seven and a half and moves like grandma. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's tough, man. I'm sorry to hear that. And, you know, and she's so friendly, and she doesn't know what's wrong. She just knows she can't move the way she wants. She still wants to run and you know swim and chase a ball. Right, retreat. right. Do, do dog stuff. Anyway. So, yeah, so... So I think, you know, as much as we really liked Brian, and as much and he's a very smart guy, really smart guy, and just where he had come to at that point in his life was almost like, like a ridiculous non sequitur to Devo. It was antithetical to, our, to where we were at. And, and so we tried to limit conversations and stuff to... The, the songs and the production. Right. Because we would start like playing the oblique strategies game and we'd have to draw cards and then pretend to contemplate what we read on that card <laughs> and how that would affect our recording. Right. It was like, no. We we have written these songs. We know why. Yeah, we you know did. what you want to do. <laughs> We're very conscious artists. We've lived with some of them three years, four years, and we want to record them the way we want to record. Well, certainly, and that's and that's something where a lot of bands are in that situation. Uh, maybe certainly not to the level the Devo was where there's a zeitgeist around it as well but just you 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 get everything written you know you try it out you you work out the kinks you get it where you want to you have it envisioned where the record's gonna be and almost gets to the point it's like oh my god can we just record this already please 
Well, I know it's 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 hard to describe, but it's like, you know, anybody with a with a very uh, um, conceptual approach to their art, whether it's a film director or you know a dancer or musician um, or a painter, just imagine suddenly you you're with somebody that says, "Wait, give me the brush. I'm gonna I'm gonna paint this with you. I'm gonna put some brush strokes on." This. Right, I'm going to put this over here. <laughs> right, or the director go, you know, they, somebody says, "Well, listen, I think that's a great idea, but I'm going to tell the DP what to do for half the spin." <laughs> you know, it's like um, we didn't want that kind of a producer. We wanted him. We wanted Brian to bring things to the table that had to do with studio uh, knowledge that we didn't have. You know, we knew what we wanted to sound like. We didn't always know how to get there. Yeah, and, it, and he, it, he did. That. He did bring those things. It, it wasn't necessarily going to be, you know, extra string sections or harmony vocals right. or things that weren't. Necessary. And that's what he was doing at first. He was putting tons of harmony vocals on. He was adding synth parts that were, you know, he wanted to be beautiful. He had reached that point in his life. He didn't want to be ugly. He didn't want to play dissonant stuff. Right. He was playing beautiful like atmospheric pads, you know, and things like that. But then he got into it and he he came up with that really nasty reverse echo slap on Mongoloid with the snare drum. Yeah, 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 which 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 is a very defining sound for the song. Like it, it makes it stand yeah. out. And he was putting that on and off on every second snare beat, right? And so that was a I mean, we knew what good ideas when we heard them in terms of our own, you know, our own tastes, right? It wasn't like we were going to reject everything he did because we didn't think of it. We're not those people. <laughs> right. Um, and he came up with uh, one of the most brilliant things is he brought in the Tibetan monkey chants. When he heard Giacomo, he said, listen, there's this recording of the Tibetans doing these monkey chants, and we're going to, we're going to, like, we're gonna we're gonna put those on tape and we're going to beat match it. We're gonna slow it down to where it's gonna come in to your song and be on time, you know. And we heard, yeah, we allowed to do that. Like, you know, do we have to pay somebody to use these? Right? Do we do we have to? Are we gonna be indebted to these monks? Are they gonna come looking for us? And like, of course, <laughs> and of course, nobody deserved that more than monks, but. Unfortunately, it was kind of a uh, public. Uh, what do you what do you call it? Public domain. Public domain recording. Because it was old enough, and it was through the Library of Congress that we got away with it. So it didn't make me feel great to rip off monks. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they generally are ripped off enough as it is. So that's yeah. Uh, well, that, yeah, we, it would turn around on us many times over, but. <laughs> We, we got ripped off big. And did you feel that... So, there's, and there was a couple songs that there are earlier uh, recordings of. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Jocko Homo specifically. And, um, you know, a couple, a couple of the other ones that ended up in the Pioneers Who First Got Friday, Scalped. Yeah. Which is a, a great compendium oh, yeah. of just, like, yeah. good balance of... You know, here's the hits, and all here's all the weird stuff as well. Yeah, and uh, and 
in some ways, I, I actually, they're different, but on some days, I actually prefer that version of Mongoloid, for instance, because it has a totally different feel to it. Like, it's got yeah. like a meaner yeah. feel in the, uh, in the earlier version. Well, it's, you could say it's more honest because it happened at a time when, you know, we hadn't seen Paris. We were down on the farm. <laughs> right. And once you go to New York and L.A. and you're influenced by all these bands that you're seeing, you know, we saw everybody, right? I mean, we, we saw Iggy play. We saw The Damned. We saw Suicide. We saw The Ramones. It could go on and on and on who we saw and and the Sex Pistols and saw all these bands live and it you can't say it's not affecting you. You wouldn't be honest if you said it wouldn't because it was just the sheer energy and performance and the new kind of punky BPMs that were insane. Right. Right. We got pumped up. We, we, we sounded like we were on blow before we ever did blow. <laughs> so, uh, and, well, and during that time, that's also when John Lennon was kicking around New York as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Didn't he, like, see you guys play at some point? Well, apparently he saw us play. Now, I never personally saw him. He came to Max's, according to the lore. Nobody in the band saw him there. Mark says he came up to Mark in a, when Mark got in a van outside of Max's and said, hey, I know where you got that lick from uh, Uncontrollable Urge. Us. Of course, you're talking about the, yeah, 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 well, da, 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 da. yeah. Well, da-da-da-da. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It may, I mean, I could see it a little bit. <laughs> I could see it a little bit. A little bit. Uh, I thought it was more off of Led Zeppelin, personally. Yeah. So, but of course, they ripped everything off. Yeah, I mean, it's because I say, who are they to talk? Really, I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> they keep they keep winning lawsuits after years, though. It's funny. Well, there's something to be said for entrenched power, which is an entirely different conversation or a larger scoping conversation, I suppose. Well, it's just that intellectual property is not respected anymore, and if you have deep pockets, you're going to win those suits. <laughs> Right. The yeah, just to make the other guy give up, right? Uh, can yeah. you 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 when you're mentioning the monks, it brought to mind the fact that uh, are we not men has the Stones cover on it, and uh, you there was there's a story about getting getting clearance from that from uh, from Mick that that I that I quite like. I'm not sure how much of his lore and how much of it is for real. Was that difficult to get? clearance from well see that's back when intellectual property was taken seriously and because we had changed the music so much um it was looked at at, in a pejorative way it was called parody like you guys have done a parody and there was a clause you know in music law where you had to go get permission from the writer uh or writers to do the song that way, or else Warner's had wanted nothing to do with that. They wanted her off the record. So Mark and I flew to New York from Los Angeles in March of 78, and um, we met Mick Jagger at Peter Rudge's office somewhere in the, like 57th Street, 
in some building that had condos and apartments and offices. And, of course, it's this lush office with these oversized leather club chairs, brown leather, English style, you know, Afghan rugs, a fireplace going, big windows looking out towards the city. And there's Peter Rudge in a three-piece, like, you know, Savile Row suit, pinstripe, with a paisley tie, and one of those creepy shirts that Robert Kraft of the Patriots still wears with the what color, you know, that <laughs> shit. I, I know precisely what you're talking about, yes. Yeah. You know, of course, Mark and I are nervous, and we make small talk with him, and he goes, okay, uh, I've called up to Mick's uh, apartment. He's coming down. So suddenly the door opens, and there's Mick, and he's, it's like, I don't know, one thirty in the afternoon, and he looks kind of sleepy, and he's got this velour turtleneck on and some wide whale corduroy pants and, and socks. He doesn't have any shoes on. And uh, he nods, says hello, and shakes hands, and then he asks Peter if he's got any claret. So Peter opens his wine cabinet and pours him a glass of red wine, you know, English call their light Bordeaux claret. So Mick swirls the glass around, sits down in the club chair, and goes, all right, let's see it then. And there's a boom box on the, on the mantel. Fireplace. And you guys and are in the same room. You're in the same room with with a, a shoeless Mick Jagger. Yeah. And Marco the cassette in, hits the boombox, and it starts. And Mark sits down. Jagger has got his head down, swirling his wine, sitting in the chair. And he's about twenty five seconds goes by. He's still looking down. He's still swirling his wine. And of course, we think, oh man, we're fucked. You know, and then he puts the wine down on the hardwood floor and he stands up and he moves towards the boombox and starts dancing like Mick Jagger in front of the fireplace. He's doing all the Mick Jagger moves that you see Mick Jagger do. And he spins around in his stocking feet on the hardwood floor and he goes, I like it. I like it. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and we're all grinny and like you know we're all relieved we're like bill and ted's big adventure we're not worthy you know? yeah <laughs> so that's got to be around the same time they were doing like what, what some girls around then uh, yeah they put out some girls at that point I think. and i think that's the one that's got the kind of um that's pretty good too but it's got it's almost like a disco-y uh kind of number right. if, I, if i remember so it's it right. wasn't exactly out of the zeitgeist for for mick like he was Doing his best to keep the stones well, relevant, right? You know, the you know the the denouement of that story kind of turns it on its head because we, you know, he everybody's all smiley, good, shakes hands, no problem. And of course, you have to understand back then we weren't going to get any of the publishing, no matter how different it was. So we we fly back to L.A. and. Uh, Monday, I call our new manager, Elliot Roberts, and I say, hey, um, guess what? Mick liked it. It's okay. We're going to, it's going on the record. He goes, yeah, I know. Peter Rudge already called me. He goes, listen, before you guys ever went there, I told Peter, tell Mick to tell these guys he likes it because we're going to make him a lot of money. Ah. 
<laughs> so, and that was Hillier Roberts. He he just wanted to like deflate my heart off. Yeah, that was. It's going to say providing a pin for your balloon. Yeah, it was like here you are, you dumb little shit. Here's the real world. Yeah, uh, though it's still, it's still a pretty cool story. But yeah, that's a little little deflated, as far as that goes. Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, and that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's insane, but it's awesome. <laughs> the, so we kind of backtracked a little bit, which, which I'm glad we did. Uh, when you were, when you were hanging with Iggy, was that before the first record or was that after? Yeah, yeah that was in the summer of 77. Um, Tony Basil came to the Starwood, our second show there our first show was a showcase where we only played like a half hour before the main act clown the hair hair metal band came on called clown <laughs> that, wait that that was the actual that was the actual name was was that was that yeah was, was it with any self-awareness yeah. of any kind or clown was, it... was a headline okay <laughs> no <laughs> not so, at all i don't mean to get hung up on a piece of banal minutiae but that's that that's very funny to me. Go ahead. And of course, Clint's audience hated us and were throwing things at us and laughing at us. But we were used to that. Right. Because that's what happened in Akron all the time. So, <laughs> so that, you know, uh, Kip Cohen of A&M Records, who brought us out for the showcase, was supposed to show up and see us live. He only showed up for the last song and a half. And he was in, you know, a white Panama suit, you know... Each blonde hair, right. no shirt, uh, with a couple bimbo girls, and he left without talking to us. Interesting. And then he called me Monday morning and said, hey, guys, come on into the office. Got to talk to you. So we went to AM Records after playing on a Saturday with Clown. <laughs> and we came in, and he goes, Go ahead, sit down, man. And he had this, like, you know, it was the whole cliche. It was a, his office was all rattan furniture with, you know, palm tree prints on the fabric cushion. And then, you know, potted Dracina Oblongata plan. You know, it was like Casablanca, right? right? And he's in, like, you know, khaki shorts and and sandals, you know, in a Hawaiian-style shirt, unbuttoned two or three buttons with a big gold chain. Yeah. Really? And, yeah, I'm getting and, the visual, yeah. <laughs> no, I believe you. Goes, you know, guys? <laughs> I definitely believe you. <laughs> you know, I caught your set. And we go, wait a minute, we, we saw you come in. He goes, well, listen, I'm a busy guy. I'm sorry, I was late. We go, yeah, we wonder what happened. He goes, well, you know, I had, to, I had another thing I had to go to. We were like, okay. And he goes, listen, I, you know, I'm just going to be straight with you. Because I brought you out here, you know. And, you know, I signed the tubes, okay. And I don't need another disaster like that. <laughs> so. <tubes>. Wow. <laughs> and he goes. Okay. He goes, you know, I think it's great, you guys. You know, you got your thing. You're really creative. But. I don't know how else to put it. You're just not my kind of girl. And, and Alan Myers goes, not your kind of girl? 
goes, yeah, you know, like, you could march six girls in here, six beautiful teenage girls naked, okay? And they're, one's got, like, small tits, one's got a mole on her ass, one's got fat thighs. What I'm trying to say is, you're just not my kind of girl. And at this point, I want to kill you, right? I want to kill you. Yeah, yeah, this, this, guy, this guy sounds like a real piece of work. <laughs> I mean, it's so offensive. And we just, you know, we were so fish out of water and hadn't heard the filth yet, right? Right. Hadn't experienced the Hollywood filth. And because this would just turn out to be de rigueur, you know, this was... He was just one of a type. It's it's a uh, that 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 time and that place was a terrarium or that specific species could certainly thrive. Yeah, oh yeah, it's like uh, Tom Hanks' cute little uh, pay on to uh, post Beatles uh, that thing you do. You've seen that movie? That thing you do. Right, right. And they finally get to go, they they finally get to meet the. Uh, uh, head of Playtone Records in L.A. Tom Hanks brings him over to meet the head, and he's eating a sandwich. And the lead singer tries to interrupt him about getting in the studio and recording a new song, and he loses it on him. And that was just so accurate. So fucking accurate. Petty despots and figured egos. Oh, God, and just the, the hideous, crude, vile personalities. So... I had nothing to say to him. I was losing it. I was fuming. And he goes, so guys, just, you know, you know, I put you up at the, you know, uh, apartments there in Oakwood, Oakwood Garden Apartments in Burbank, and which we found out later they owned a stake in, so they put all their acts up there. And he goes, look, you're there till the end of the month if you want to be. It's paid. So, you know, hang out at Jacuzzi, get laid. You'll get great, great stories. You can go home to Akron and tell your friends all about these great stories in L.A., right? Oh, and that Johnny Big Time thing, sure, yeah. Have a good time. You know, so we go out of the parking lot. I'm like, that motherfucker, that piece of shit, that fucking asshole. And Alan goes, well, maybe we didn't deserve a record deal. And I go, Fuck that shit. Bullshit. We're not going anywhere. And I went back to David Knight at the Starwood and begged him to let us play there again. And he said, okay, I'll give you a chance. He goes, you guys shouldn't have had to play in front of Clown. Clown. And he goes, you know, and he goes, Steve Samioff, you know, he was, he was, he wrote a, like one of those freebie punk newspapers that was in every town, you know, like the music paper, right? Right. I forget what it was called. You know, in New York, it was the New York Rocket. Out here, it was something else. And he had come to the gig, and we didn't meet him either, but he had written us off. So David Knight let us play. And this time, we got a week's worth of publicity. And Tony Basil showed up with Dean Stockwell and Iggy Pop. And it had turned out that Iggy Pop actually had listened to the cassette we left him when we went to see him in Cleveland in March of 77 on the Idiot Tour with David Bowie playing keyboard. And we just thought it would get thrown in the trash yes. like a number. 
others, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. Why would why would you think it'd be anything other than that? But, but Bowie told Iggy to sift through the cassettes and if he found anything interesting, to let him know. So Iggy had remembered Devo, and when Tony brought it up, he says, "Oh yeah, I heard them guys." <laughs> so he shows up with. You know, and they, of course, you know, Tony had the run of the place and was a celebrity. So they came backstage. She introduces herself. I'm starstruck. I had seen her in all the magazines. I had probably masturbated to her. And <laughs> no, seriously. And, uh, no, I, no, I believe you. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I just can't believe it. She's got this little gold lame vest on. No bra, no, no top. Black Toreador pants and four-inch heels, open-toed heels with red-painted toenails, and her hair up in a kind of you know French twist. I mean, it was she was ready for the stage, <laughs> and you know, I was there. There was me, you know, Mr. Ohio Spud, trying to act cool but getting a boner. She, she introduces Dean Stockwell, who I didn't recognize at all. You know, I remembered him only from his youth and early movies, like, you know, uh, what was Boy with the Hair? Yeah, he's been in, been in a, tons of movies. Absolutely. Like, one time, for whatever reason, I ended up looking up his discography, and he's been in a lot, but it's hard to remember, like, a definitive, oh, yeah, that's that movie is the one that was his definitive role or anything. And then she points to this guy who's seated against the wall looking kind of wasted he's got regular kind of eyeglasses on in a kind of a messy chopped up punky hairdo and just a, a t-shirt and jeans and she goes and this is james james osterberg and i knew who that was yeah, right I'm like right right and and now i had seen him like six months before that looking like iggy pop right so i go oh yeah you're iggy pop and he just looks up at me and goes, I am Iggy Pop. Like, you asshole. Right? Yeah. He looks at me. And I go, oh, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't recognize you, man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's how my thing was. He got to talking and he explained how, uh, what, what James, you know, I mean, what, what uh, David had told him. Right. And we recounted the whole night there at, at Swingo's in Cleveland. <laughs> And uh, and he said he was going to call David and tell him that he saw us and that we were great, and he did. And he, he referred me to uh, uh, Stan Diamond, who was David Bowie's attorney for Buley Brothers Records that he had with uh, Tony Freeze, and uh, that's how those talks started. Everything was through Stan Diamond, and then eventually it was through this girl Coco that was Bowie's Girl Friday that who everybody had to go through as it turns out I found out the various public figures that Co Coco was Coco was like the gatekeeper in this situation? Yeah. Total. Total <laughs> empowered gatekeeper. Yes. Yep. So okay, so oh wow, that's quite the tableau. And no clown this time, so that's good. No clown this time. And and we got a crowd because of Steve Samioff and this punk paper, 
we got a crowd that came to see Debo. Right. The word on the street in the little new wave punky community, you know, because I mean, I had, along with everybody else in the band, seeded the whole Sunset and Santa Monica Boulevard telephone poles with Devo stuff, right? Right. We did our job. We stapled Devo stuff all over the fucking place. And um, Steve Samioff had written about us, and that was that. We, we got at least a crowd of 100 and so people that were there to see us, and they went nuts, and David Knight asked us back. We started sleeping on floors. I started sleeping with Tony Basil. <laughs> wow, what a, what, a, what, a, what a remarkable turnaround. <laughs> it sure was, and she hooked me up with all these locals that you know were connected and helped me out with the business yeah so that i got i got to meet marshall burrow and i got into the store i mean i got into this, uh, uh whiskey and so on and so on and then we got ourselves into mabuhe gardens because of her connections and it just it just mushroomed quickly things happened so fast back then everything was so fast each week was a a complete new level and new adventure and we ended up being out in L.A. for three and a half months that culminated in the famous Halloween shows at Starwood got shut down by the fire department because David Knight oversold them. <laughs> and, uh, and by that time, we were, you know, we were being courted by eight or ten record companies all, you know, competing. So it, it kind of took advocacy from known commodities uh, right. to, to wag the dog in this case right and you know most of the people approaching us were nefarious characters like kip cohen and they would ask for too much and they wanted a piece of publishing right. they wanted to sign you to deals where you didn't have control over the money you were supposedly getting and i had read a book about the music business put out the head of chrysalis records our kind of music. He had, he had guided the careers of people like Whitney Houston. Okay, uh, gotcha. All right. You see him. He's still still an important character. Clive Davis. <laughs> ah, there Clive, you go. And he wrote a book about the business. And he in it, and it's so ironic that he would be telling artists, watch out for these things, when he had done all of them to, to the artist. But he said, you know, don't sign anything but a production deal where you control the money and... And so that you pay the studio costs, you pick the producer, right. you know, right? You decide how money will get spent on in-store promotional items, blah, 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 right? Yeah, so nobody and can launder money through your band budget or something along those lines. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. what was that? And don't let anybody take a piece of your publishing. Yeah. So it's like, so I was armed with these, you know, these don'ts. And I stuck to them. And so I became known right away as the difficult guy. Right. So right away they would go to Mark, because Mark liked to tell people what they wanted to hear and wanted to be liked. Right. And I didn't give a fuck if I was liked, because they were trying to rip Devo off and nip our careers in the butt as far as I was concerned. So I wanted to preserve what Devo was about and get us to the first base with intact. Right. Intact. And, and, and I thought both do that, but his Bule Brothers deal was another ripple. And that's why we didn't sign with Bule Brothers. Well, and because Warner was going to give Bule Brothers five hundred grand an album. Ooh. 
whether it's going to turn around and give us 250 an album. Right. But the 500 an album was all recoupable from Devo income. So it was we were signed to Bule, who was distributed by Warner's. It wasn't a direct deal. And what when I told David Berman at Warner Brothers that I wanted a direct deal, he just thought, you little fucker, you little shit. You're ruining this whole you know <laughs> right right you presumptuous ohio screwhead <laughs> yeah how dare you first of all how dare you <laughs> and i stuck to it so he finally offered us up something short of that called a uh contract of first refusal where he says here's what we'll give you we're guaranteeing this we're putting it in writing if we like the record this is what you will get right and we went to germany without a record deal with Brian as the producer on board because Warners had promised him what he would get. And he knew more than us what, how the business really worked, way more than us. He knew he was going to get this deal. Oh, man. It's like you almost, you almost need a conspiracy theory-style flowchart to keep up with all of it, right? <laughs> oh, and that was just the beginning. I mean, all those stories you hear, they're not exaggerated. It's always high diddly D. It's the actor's life for me. It's Pinocchio. You're going. You're going to Donkey Island, you know, or Pleasure Island. <laughs> right, right. It's really the boys turn into donkeys after they get reamed in the ass. Yeah, it's so. It's it, and it's so fascinating that Devo, being such a subversive musical entity, that you you really followed your own compass. And in in that way came from definitionally what I would say is the the mindset of punk rock, if not what later became defined as the sound of punk rock, with all the rules of engagement that followed. That yeah, well, punks didn't like us because we didn't follow their rules. It's right. funny there is there is a uh, you know as pedantic and and undemocratic as anything. <laughs> we were we were true punks to me. We were the people that were, you know, kind of anarchists. We, we, we said, fuck you. We make our rules. There are no rules. Yeah. We're going to do what we want to do. It was DIY for real. And we weren't going to, like, dress a certain way and play only three chords and thrash with a certain beat. We were interested in ideas. Which appeals... Punks weren't. They were anti-intellectual. They were anti-intellectual. Yeah, that was and, yeah, right, exactly. And being fundamentally intellectual, and I would even say critical thinking music, which is somewhat rare and certainly difficult to base a career on, didn't exactly endear you to the more conservative elements. No, certainly not. And had Whippet not been a hit, that would have been Devo's last record. I mean, Warner sent an A&R man, who I can't remember which one now, to New York when we were playing the Palladium during the uh, Duty Now for the Future tour in 79 in September. And backstage before the show, he told us, listen, Warners is very unhappy with where things are and they don't like this record that you're touring on right now. And and so unless there's something that makes it to radio, uh, next record is your last one. And we don't care what our contract says. Um, we're not going to honor it. And you can sue us if you want, but you won't win. And then we go on stage. Yeah, have a great show. 
<laughs> wow. Oh man. So and and so let's that's a good segue into talking about freedom of choice, which I just want to get get it out of the way that one of my favorite songs from you guys long has been the title track on there. And I've always been annoyed by folks that have covered it, uh, not for the sec covering it, but because they've, they've lacked the, the lyrical nuance to realize the turnaround in it. <laughs> I'm sorry. You broke up there for a second. Uh, I mean, I always wanted, I, I said, who covered freedom of choice? I don't know of that. Uh, there's, there's been a few, uh, let's see. Uh, I think Moby may have done it. I mean, it's nothing, yeah, that's a mistake. <laughs> no, you know, okay. Oh, you know what I'm saying. Look, I love Moby, but yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we don't need, uh, you no, know, no. vegan granola version of Freedom of Choice. What we needed was Axl Rose to cover it. Right. That's what would have been with Guns and Roses. Where Freedom of Choice, it would have been incredible. Watch it, wow, it wow. It would have been a big hit. It, it was a Fucking rocker. Yeah. Well, and that and that harkens back, uh, again, talking earlier, the fact that there's a lot of, as much as, you know, you guys were very academic music, there it hit hard and rocked hard, and therefore it's something where it lends itself well when you have, uh, like, like isn't there a Soundgarden cover of Girl You Want, if I remember correctly, which was blew my and mind. It's so bizarre. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's very they just, strange. They deconstructed it and made me not like it. <laughs> At least they try to do their own version, I suppose. That's, we can, we can well, get you know, that. they did try that. And I, I did kind of like um, um, Kurt Cobain's version of Turnaround. Well, and one of the reasons I liked about it is because that was one of the lesser-known songs. That was like not like one of the ones that felt definitively like have a definitive version. So, I, I think it was only a B-side on a single. Yeah, yeah, because I didn't even have that on my records when I heard it. I'm like, this is a Devo song. Which one? Where? Uh, and then Rage Against the Machine did the most morose version of "Beautiful World" you could ever imagine, which is a fairly remote, <laughs> fairly morose song to begin with. Which is one of the things that makes it. I've actually never heard that, but I can't say I'm a. Well, huge. we made it sound upbeat. Right, exactly. That's what made it. So that's the commitment to the bit of of it being. The subject matter is very dark, and the sur- subject matter is very like if you stop and think about it, it's like oh, but. You listen to it, it's like, oh, that's a peppy little number. Ah, and it's for folks that just don't listen closely or don't listen to lyrics at all, they maybe would not even notice that. Well, that's what I loved. That's Devo was good at that. I mean, right. on that song, the sucker punch comes at three minutes. Yeah. And that, <laughs> for you, for you, for you, but not for, for me. Not for me, exactly. <laughs> and that's and that's a thing that, for me, that I mean, that makes the song. That makes that that makes it. It's it's. <laughs> that was it. It would be like. Um, it'd be like watching get out and only like, you know, watching the first 20 minutes of it. Oh, it's a delightful movie where a, where a, young, a young man you know, and his girlfriend go on a pastoral vacation. Original script for get out. No, no. Well, it ain't a feel good ending. I was going to say, I, I know that they did the, there was an alternate ending, which ended probably more like how it actually ended in real life. What, which how it would actually end where the cop shows up, yeah. And assumes the black guy killed the girl, yep. and he goes to jail for murder. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's 
Hollywood too, doesn't like that. They yeah, don't like that. Too real. Yeah, what they like is glad handing gave themselves rewards for solving racism, like that movie Crash, which is one of the most insulting things I've ever seen. Oh in my, my life. god, that was amazing. Oh, that was that was a de-evolution in action, my friend. My, <laughs> it sure was. Yeah, that's what they call a load of shit. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, getting getting back to, and and this has been movie reviews with Jerry and Conan. Yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of which, I wish idi- idiocracy was is is the best concept that was not like I, it was like seventy percent of what jealous. it should have been. I was jealous. I mean, that's the Devo movie that should have we should have made. And the problem is, the script was much better than the realization. I mean, yeah. Mike Judge didn't do a good job on that one. He didn't have the money he needed. And he didn't have the power he needed. I like Mike Judge a lot. But. He's brilliant. And Silicon Valley yeah. alone shows that like he's, he's still not only got it, but has the ability to be insanely funny and, and relevant now with current well, The first three seasons of that were right on the money. Yeah. Then he kind of jumped the shark. A little bit. But well, it's, uh, well it's, in, in my personal estimation, even with not sticking the landing, I think they did a good enough job to, to be oh, yeah. an upper echelon. Yeah. And, and a smart show. A fundamentally became- smart show. The formula became so caffeinated that in every episode, there were going to be three times that something good happens by something followed bad by something followed good. Right. And it's not, I mean, that's not atypical either for kind of not knowing how to land the plane with something. (laughs) It's not the first time that's happened, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But getting away from the media critique, uh, freedom of choice, like, uh, yeah, so... You know, one of the things that I, I love so much about the title track on there was, again, like, you know, it's sort of depending on how closely you listen to the lyrics, you can take away something different from it. And well, it sounded patriotic. It, exactly. It sounded like, you know, hey, everybody. Yeah, let's go. Let's go uh, go to the Fourth of July and do a thing. And then if you listen to the lyrics, it's like, oh, no, you're this is like a critique of like what it means to basically be a human and have free will and, and what you, and, and it's fantastic that it's sort of wrapped into like a pill. You would give a dog, you wrap it in a little cheese and give it to the dog. Yeah, Well, that's Evo. That's just, just a good way of putting it. <laughs> because Look, I mean, our, our, our worldview and our view of humanity, while it was dark, it was based on, Real evidence, real, just hit you over the head over and over empirical evidence that if you're not blind, you can't miss it. And, of course, in the 50s, there was a a famous behavioralist psychologist, uh, Eric Fromm, F-R-O-M-M. And he wrote a book where he describes how people wanted freedom from choice. Right. How they, they... they put their heads in the sand, and they conform, even when they are not, uh, uh, you know, forced through some threat. This is what they do. This is uh, a problem with human nature. And so the people that are capable of logic and critical thought are in the minority. And that's why there's always this rush towards uh, uh, dictatorships, and that's now what in America, our wonderful experiment of democracy, it lasted a long time. It was a good run, but yeah, 
it, it, it was a good run, and it's just in the last fifty years, it's been death by a thousand cuts. Where, you know, the average person wants to. What's the cliche about the frog in the warm water that's being? Oh yeah, where where you turn the heat up slowly, the frog doesn't notice until that it's already boiling. So it's too late. Yeah, that's kept going here, where people, all the glass half full people, kept going. Oh no. We're going to turn that around. There's still plenty of democracy. You're you're just overstating it. We can we can undo what they've done. And what they don't notice is the glass kept getting smaller. You know, it was like a shell game where they kept putting the glass back in front of the person. And this time, it wasn't an eight ounce glass. It was a six ounce glass, and so on down to a shot glass. And now, the system has been so destroyed and rigged by right wing ideologues who hate liberty. Hey, freedom! Don't like democracy. That they've won, and what you saw the Supreme Court just do in Wisconsin by forcing to vote while under the threat of COVID nineteen and death, right? To make sure that they disenfranchised tens of thousands of voters who were mostly poor and democratic. Yeah, this was just a. This was they're not even trying to hide it anymore. This was a point blank assassination where they put the gun to the head of Miss Liberty and pull the trigger point blank and go, what are you going to do about it? And nobody can do anything about it. Now you have a 36% minority controlling everything. Yep. And that's the way it's going to go. So now what's happening is if it wasn't bad enough already where you have a subhuman vile dictator president who loves fellow dictators across the globe. COVID-19 was the gift in his lap bigger than that 9-11 was a gift in W's lap to, to pull through the Patriot Act and TSA, right? That's kindergarten. This is the big deal, folks. This ain't going away. This is now going to be the surveillance state of plutocracy where any illusion about freedom or privacy is gone. Right. And well, yeah. It's. It's. I mean, that started with the Patriot Act. Electoral college rigged, voter suppression, gerrymandering. It's done. It's over, folks. Somebody left the left the barn door open, and now you got trouble in the barnyard, as Daddy Know It All said in Devo's first movie. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, and that's. I mean, it's hard to. It's hard to reconcile because. One always, when one is in the aspect of folks that are critical thinking and that uh, want to take action and be helpful to their environment and create upon something, actionable items are helpful. And when there's just such this this mass, you know, I'm just going to reuse W's term of shock and awe uh, effect, you know, this, 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 uh, miasma of hopelessness just descends on everyone. Well, you know, it's which is by design, I might add. Like that's not that's not an accident. Like this is, I mean, no psyops that's that we the that we we did this stuff in. Uh, I don't, you know, this is really going to be a, a di- digression, but I mean, we did this stuff in South American countries. Like this is not. I mean, this obviously COVID nineteen was not a, a planned thing. That was a happy accident for the forces of autocracy. But well, of course, the conspiracy <laughs> people think it was planned. But regardless, I think I think. Humans are just weasels and sleazeballs that seize upon chaos and go, hey, you know what? This is an opportunity, right? So I think COVID-19 
it's 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 a moot point whether it was a lab thing or a bat. Doesn't matter to me. What a what a Devo thing, by the way. That if <laughs> that well, like you're this. just watching, you're watching all the authoritarians in the world seize upon it right. as a tool to weaponize to do what they were trying to do already, and now it's going to be so easy because, like, when when I went to the you know campus at May Fourth, nineteen seventy, and was a member of SDS and protesting the expansion of the war into Vietnam. What they did, I mean, the expansion of the war from Vietnam into Cambodia without an act of Congress, that's what that protest was about that day. Um, what they did is they waited till that morning to have the governor and the head of the university declare martial law, which removes your ability to assemble and freedom of speech and all kinds of other First Amendment rights. Martial law is the go-to plan of despots. Well, COVID-19 is like blanket martial law. This is incredible. Yeah, and and not M A R S H A L L, as I believe Senator Marco Rubio said, as if it was a character yeah. in a fighting game. Martial law. Yeah, martial law, right? <laughs> I mean, you got you got to find your laugh somewhere, you know, even as as the well, world burns. All the stuff now is gallows humor. That's it. I mean, otherwise, you'd pick up a gun. But the problem is, it's the right wing that has all the guns, and they shoot the good guys. Well, and, and the so with that, there was always sort of a deep, dark, and abiding humor to what Devo did, and the fact that there was a, there was a commitment to the bit of whatever you were doing. What I appreciated so much with Devo's stuff is as much as there's dark humor to it, it wasn't like, "Hey, everybody, look at this!" It, it was it was very much it was there if you if you listen closely, if you looked for it. And it was there in the critiques and in in the fact that you're presenting an absurdist tableau sometimes. Well, we weren't really partisan. I mean, when we said we're all Devo, we meant it. And we yeah. were including ourselves. Right, right, right. Because right. we were talking about the basic flaw in human nature that's the fatal flaw, which you're now seeing crystallize. Yeah. And so you're right. And we were funny. And we were ironic. And there was satire on purpose. Like you said, we were wrapping in cheese on purpose. Because you could see what happens when you don't. You're, then you're Lenny Bruce or you're uh, George Carlin when they quit being funny because they were really smart people who really <laughs> saw what the fuck was going on and they couldn't even afford to be funny anymore. They went for it and that was their self-destruction. Yeah, because they, in, instead of actually telling jokes, they're just announcing very well-reasoned and substantial media and culture critiques that are yeah, like, <laughs> dangerous you truths. lose your voice in the marketplace and lose your life, go for it, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, this is this the, there's there's no way out of it. This is going to be an awkward transition. But can you tell me about the making of that record? <laughs> because what I don't want to do is the listening audience to fill their pockets full of stones and walk into the ocean, which I think we're dangerously close to. Uh, but don't I'm, give up that satisfaction. Don't start committing suicide. <laughs> you know, take out some of these mother. <laughs> right. Exactly. Make, your, make yourself of use, please. Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely. Go down fighting. Um, freedom of choice. Oh, freedom of choice was that was a fun record because we, you know, we had lived with those early songs on the first two records for years and years and years. But now we were moving from, you know, songs of innocence to songs of experience, and we were experiencing a lot as individuals and as a band, and been through a lot, and we were changing and getting excited about new things. And Bob Mothersbaugh and I had been, for a long time, big fans of 
R&B music and black dance music and funk. And, and we didn't see any need to keep, you know, smacking the rock and roll drums over and over and over. And um, we talked, you know, back then it was uh, open collaboration where we talk about all these ideas, right? We discuss things. And so Mark was really on board with that idea. You know, he liked he liked what Stevie Wonder had done with, with the keyboard, liked using Moog synthesizers to play bass parts. And oh, said, of course. Yeah, 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 of course. We agreed that we were going to do Debo's version of R&B, which would be more like robot R&B, and that I wouldn't play a bass guitar. I would play bass synthesizer on a Moog, and the parts wouldn't be rock and roll parts. And Alan was totally on board with that. You know, he as he was a an accomplished jazz drummer, and he liked the more counterpointed stuff and dancey beats. Right. So he didn't have to lay down these wooden right. So he so we we went off on a little adventure writing these kind of songs with these other kind of beats and bass parts, and that made us excited. That made us. It's different. Looking yeah. forward every day to get together at two or three in the afternoon and work until midnight with a dinner break, right? And that's what we did. We rented a studio in Hollywood, and we were there for like six weeks, and that's all we did every fucking day, seven days a week. Wow. And we wow. and we wrote those songs between uh, November of uh, seventy nine and January of seventy eight. And, and Freedom of Choice is what the last song we wrote. Really? And did you already know the album was going to be called Freedom of Choice, or did that come later? Nope. Nope. The album was going to be called something else at that point. It was going to, hmm. I think it was going to be called It's Time for Devo. <laughs> and, uh, you know. As it I turns out, it was Time for Devo, song. but that's a different song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't think that was very strong. And, and Freedom of Choice just galvanized us. That was it. Well, certainly, yeah. and uh, that's also the record that, and it was the video, I would say, that, that really brought you to the mainstream. And as evidenced by that wonderful DVD, I mean, you guys were into video, not only oh. before it was cool, but before, like, really you were... Before there was video. Before I there was, was video, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you got to understand, our first, quote, videos were 16 millimeter film. Right, And that all happened because I was good friends with Chuck Statler, who was a film buff and a fellow student at Kent State who was older than me. We became really tight friends. And I was a visual artist. He was a visual artist. And I got totally hooked on film because of him. That was the, uh, was, was that the, in the beginning was the end? The Yeah. I started learning about film and asked him a million questions. And he had a camera. He had a Bolex. And so we started shooting little things, not as Debo, like him and I, me being a subject in the film in coming up with scenarios. And I didn't know what I was doing was directing back then. You know, I thought the director was the guy that ran the camera. Right. That turned out to be the director of photography. But the director is the guy with the narrative, the idea. But when you're making a film you really have to know a lot before you're going to be a good director. And I didn't know what I needed to know, but Chuck was teaching me. So, yes, we were making films starting you know, in 1975. We started making 
The beginning was the end. And it was a, a short, and we were going to introduce the idea of this band that was only a concept. There was no real Devo. So Devo was an idea, and that was, you know, uh, that was Bob Mothersbaugh, uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, Jim Mothersbaugh on drums, who was this technician trying to make electronic drums back then. Back then, wow. And those were homemade electronic like drums. 76, right? I mean, this is the... To- to, to place it, am I, am I correct? Around that time yeah. period, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And, yeah. And first appearance of Bougie Boy, first appearance of yeah. General Boy, yeah. like characters that yeah. would be part of the uh, the Devo world for years right. to come. Mark and I were mask collectors, and we would always put on masks, and we would do performance art dramas. Chuck started shooting some of that stuff, and we sat down and mapped out that first movie. Right. I still have like notebooks and and <laughs> funny this on the back of a menu one night when we were eating dinner together with chuck i started mapping out scenes and i still have that menu <laughs> that's awesome uh, that i wrote back of yeah so we were totally devo always was a multimedia uh concept from the beginning it was on purpose you know totally. well I, I, and even before i don't know the, the exact timeline but some of the things that you guys experimented with, like like the girl you want video, for instance, how it's you know almost like yeah. a, a Beatles esque Beatles on Sullivan sort of send up, but then like the co- is it the contrast, like all the colors are kind of just really just yeah. screwed up to the point that I would yeah, imagine we, if you well, saw we it. found out what happened. Well, yeah, we found out what what happened in a video editing suite by accident uh, when uh, it's it's just like. Um, it's the video version of audio phase shifting when things go out of phase. Right. So when the RGB goes out of phase, there's this complete mutation of all the colors. And we said, okay, we're going to do that on purpose. We're going to take our video and we're going to put it out of phase on purpose. We're going to shoot it, you know, it'll look good that way. Right. And it's that same sense of, of not just excitement in the form and what you can do with it, but also making use of the restrictions and the uh, the trappings. Lots of restrictions. Yeah. Lots. Th- that's certainly something that I took from uh, creatively from that, as many others have as well, of making that part of part of the adventure or, or whatnot. And then if you watch them all together, like in like in that DVD, which I don't even know if that's available in another format. Uh, it's really quite compelling and, and can be a great introduction to the band because I think you get a good sense of you guys' personality and like overall ethos that maybe you wouldn't get just from someone making you a playlist or a you know mixtape right. if this was the days of your. Yeah, we shot Freedom of Choice and Girl You Want for a total of $25,000 <laughs> and, you know, using those huge old video machines <laughs> and those heavy cameras and uh you know that's that's no money at all i mean you know we we went to some casting agency and got all extras for those girls in the crowd for girl you want but then we didn't have enough so we dressed up some guys in drag i don't know if you know there's three guys in drag in there. Right. I, i've watched enough that i actually did notice that and, and what's funny is i watched it recently and i was like oh i didn't notice that guy <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And of course, you know, Chuck went to some 
company called Employees Overload or something, where people that were looking for jobs, signing up for unemployment, looking for jobs, he got the he got the the kid to get in the um, electric uh, weight reduction machine with milkshake. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from Employees Overload. Yeah. What, would you, what does that listing look like? <laughs> <laughs> Needed that was a one, really crude machine what, one human being to be on 1950s style weight reduction machine for music video <laughs> I know I know safety well, not guaranteed <laughs> really cheap and, and what's funny is he, he was so stiff and such a bad actor that the milkshake wasn't coming out so we had to you had to get him to do things to make the milkshake spill on purpose. Um, you know, oh, that's amazing. what you find out when you have a direct idea and then you realize this is really hard to make this happen. You know, you have the vision. What's my motivation for the milkshake spilling out? Well, you're yeah. on a machine, dude. <laughs> when you're doing comedy with untalented people, <laughs> which Devo excelled at. So with Whip It, it happened to be a confluence of, uh, you know, overplayed or not, brilliant song, brilliant video, perfect time where MTV was allowing the rabble in because they hadn't have it figured out yet. That's right. Uh, and all of these things conspire to change things up, I think would yeah. be a charitable way to say that, right? Yeah, because we, we had started our tour for Freedom of Choice thinking, okay, this is the last tour because... Yeah, they already Warner told Brothers, you. Yeah. Warner's had put all that money on uh, Girl You Want and it sticked. So... Which is crazy because that's, that's... I feel like of all the... Like, that's a song that I could play for rockist people yeah. uh, and they would get it immediately. Like, it's just such a... It's such a peppy, you know, instant hook yeah. sort of song, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, so, it, so it was like, that's it. You know, we... We put our money on black on the roulette wheel and it didn't come up. So so we go out and we're, we're playing small venues and thinking this is the end. And uh, Cal Rudman, who's a local uh, radio programmer in the southeast out of Florida, when there were independent radio guys like him, it wasn't like Clearwater and all these things. It was like he had control of... The whole southeastern United States, he put out the Rudman Report. And when he said things, his DJs would play it. Right. And he could, and it was based on what he liked, you know? So he had ears. He really had ears. So Cal Rudman, somebody had given him the record from Warner's and said, Girl, you want? He said, No. I like Whip. So he started playing Whip It about the time we're on tour. And within. Two weeks, we had to stop the tour because we had to rebook everything because it blew through the roof and started playing in New York, then L.A. And we went from 400 seaters to, to like 3,000 seaters. And, <laughs> and then Warner said, hey, you got to take a break and do a video because, you know, we hadn't made a video to that song. Right. So that was just from the radio play then? Yeah. Okay. And so, so you make the we video. We hiatus in LA and and had a big fifteen thousand dollars for a video, and we shot that in our rehearsal studio in a sixteen-hour day. And I had the whole idea from a 
from a, a men's magazine because Mark and I used to go to these novelty stores and we just loved these like 60s horrible men's magazines like Dude and Nugget and you know there's there, there, women with big fake boobs and yeah, there's a one that's a, I think it's Man's Life, and there's a it's a guy, a bloody guy fighting an alligator, and the subtitle is "Give Me Back My Arm," and there you it's, go. it's one of my favorites. I know the type very well. Well, that's the kind of yeah, those are the kind of stories they had. Except this one had a story about a stuntman that married a stripper in L.A., left the business, and he had a dude ranch in Arizona, and he. Every day at noon, for the people that were staying at the dude ranch, he had this act where he'd whip his wife's clothes off in the corral. And of course, it was all there were all the pictures. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it never went all the way. You know, she'd end up with pasties and a bikini bottom on and stockings and heels. So it was like, okay, that's it. Whip it's going to be. Mark's going to whip the clothes off this woman while all-American kind of Reagan-esque girls and boys in the corral cheer cheer him on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, you know, insanely, like, just bizarre and subversive as, like, a David Lynch film or something, but, like, done in this, like, exactly. sped-up sort of way. Yeah. Exactly. And then I added the the woman making whipped cream, you know, to make things literal, and the her assistant at the country Martin Brentwood was that cross-eyed Asian girl. She really was cross-eyed. But that what she wasn't acting. She was actually. Oh wow. Yep. Okay. Yep. Oh yeah. And the girl whose clothes we whip off, she had a shop called the Buttery that made uh, crepes. Crepes. Oh. Wow. She, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the butter. <laughs> the butter. Yeah. <laughs> People thought she was Grace Jones. Yeah, well, she had that, that same sort of look. I mean, it was definitely... Uh, I know. If, 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 if you were only a casual person, maybe flipping on a, a young burgeoning <laughs> MTV. <were> <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you don't pay attention that closely, maybe. Yeah, all right. <laughs> no. Okay, so so things change. You're, you're, <laughs> Devo, Devo's playing... Bigger rooms. Clearly, the the conversation of you know this is your last record, guys, goes away. But they what they want to do is they want they want a record with like ten whippets on it. Uh, oh yeah, suddenly you know overnight we went from you know the nerd losers to their heroes, and right. of course they they threw big party for us and big in store things. And uh, yeah, we were heroes. And so then when the, when we started the next record, of course they're all going. We need another whipping, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> and they kept whipping that whipping, but they didn't hear it. Well, and that's and so that record, of course, you know, you got through being cool, which is, as I mentioned, like far earlier on, is it was sort of like a it, it, an anthem for all the for all the uh, freaks, nerds, and weirdos uh, of the world. Yep. Yeah, and you start off the record with that, and of course, we're talking now about a, a new traditionalists. And you guys were known for the energy domes and the energy dome, uh, you know, as, as I'm speaking to you right now, there's an energy dome in front of you. It's the iconic Devo image. But for people less familiar with the band, or maybe they just didn't give a crap. It wasn't like that was 
necessarily essential to the Devo look at that time. That's where you had like the JFK style uh, pompadours, if I remember correctly. Right. right. That was that was the right. motif for that uh, that era. Right. So you got these guys that are you know everyone wants like a new whippet, but you know whatever. Like there's you you've got uh, yeah what's on there? Beautiful worlds on there. Right. I forgot about Beautiful that. Love without, Love without anger. We talked about that as well. Peppy sounding. Peppy sounding songs that are about really depressing crap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how would, so it's less, obviously it's, it's less successful than freedom of choice, but it's, you move forward with your own vision and with the, the technology that you want. What, what, it, what changes with new traditionalists, like being like a band with a quote unquote hit at that, at that time, well, what changes? We, we had, we, now we were putting on an elaborate show with, with uh, synchronized treadmills in this kind of like fast food Greek restaurant set uh, <laughs> that came apart and became a two level thing that we, we would come out and do the encore and we would be up, Mark and I would be up on an eight foot riser after the facade of the temple was stripped away. Wow. It was very elaborate, you know, and rear projection film. Um, and people were going nuts. These were big shows. And we were playing places like the Universal Amphitheater. Yeah. So you're putting on a big, like a big show in the in the grand tradition of like the big rock and roll show, but doing it the Devo way. But yeah, but the Devo way, it's not. Yeah, we're using theatrical lighting. We're using props that could have been in a stage play, you know, um, we were doing the things we had always wanted to do, or at least a little bit of them, that we could never do. And that was exciting to us, you know. It was thrilling to do this show. And people loved it. They were standing up from song one and never sat down. You know, we were playing theaters, like with seats, you know, proscenium arch stages, because of the kind of show we were doing. Right. And was that? Uh, let's see. I'm trying. I'm trying to place it. Is that around the same time that you guys did Letterman, or was that? That was that was earlier. I don't think we did Letterman yet. At that point, we had done, of course, um, we had done Saturday Night Live, Fridays, Mike Douglas, Fridays, oh, Jesus, yeah. You know, Merv Griffin. Um, oh my God! What was the one with? The Wolfman Jack was the MC on. Oh, oh! Came on Saturday night, I think, or Friday night. Don Don Kirshner. Don Kirshner's something. Whatever. Rock whatever. Something. Yeah, yeah. And Wolf Jack would be the MC. Yeah, we did that. And, uh, the Midnight Special. Oh yeah, that's it. That's it. Jesus. We did that. That was a long way to go for the Midnight Special. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> You know, and we and we did the guy, you know, the famous guy that was still around from American Bandstand. He never went away. Uh, you know, the guy that never aged until he suddenly looked until he did thirty. Hey, he looked eighty. So. <laughs> until the pact with the devil ran out, he aged ninety years in the course of a day. <laughs> right. Yeah. The picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah. Miss um, Mister uh, Mister Dick Clark. Who Dick Clark? We did him. Yep. Yeah, he didn't know what to make of us. That really freaked him out. But I don't think we did Letterman until we did That's Good and Peekaboo on Oh No, It's Diva. A much misunderstood so, record that I think actually has fantastic songs. And I love that record. I, I love I think I think the most underappreciated Diva record. So can you speak to 
the creation of that and where the band was at the time there. Because uh, if I remember right, there was uh, like a video for a, a bunch of them that were kind of like strewn together as well. That was the, that, the whole concept where there was to try to seamlessly merge what our videos would look like with our live show. Right. Like the so, overall presentation. Right. Yeah, if you saw a Debo video, that's what you were going to see when you went to the show. Because we had, what we had done is we had shot all the backgrounds to the full song, but we had taken the sequencer line tracks and click tracks at the same time of putting down a mix onto a second machine so that our films would sync up to just the click tracks. So now when we played live to the sequencers, right. It looked like the video because you were watching the video behind is totally in sync with characters singing, with everything totally in sync with the music. And it was on a screen, it was 17 by 25 feet, and people were, you know, they were shitting their pants. It was fantastic. And the songs were dark. I mean, that was a cocaine. <laughs> I can hear it. I can hear it, yeah. <laughs> I especially love Peekaboo. That's one of my favorite songs ever. Yeah, Peekaboo, you said? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 an all-timer for me. Wasn't there uh Wasn't there a song that like was partially uh John, John Hinckley um John Hinckley lyrics? Well, there's uh, that's good. Was that? Oh, I yes, desire. Yes, I, desire. Yes. I desire. Mhm. Yeah. Yes, those the first two verses are from Hinckley's poem to Jody Foster. Jody Foster, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's pretty, d- pretty we dark. Had to get her <laughs> well, we had to get her permission. Uh, was she cool with it? She came. Well, to- obviously, it was maybe on there, but so, but like, what, what was? How did that? How did that conversation go? <laughs> well, she was very uptight when she came and wanted to know why in the hell we wanted to do that. Yeah. And we said, well, listen, listen to the third verse. We're, we're putting him down for what he did, yeah. for what he said to you. We're, we're, we're telling the world that he's a dangerous psycho, which the third verse does tell you that. Right. And, and personally, you know, if he hadn't tried to kill Reagan, which I'm sorry he missed, but uh, <laughs> if he hadn't tried to kill Reagan, I think the poetry was good, crazy man poetry. I mean, I pledge allegiance to the fact that your love is, is all that matters. Come on. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. good psychos. <laughs> that's, that's rock solid psycho lyricism, to be sure. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, his lyrics that we used are excellent. So there's... Uh... There's a period where, you know, there's shout and total Devo. And since I, you know, I, I want to value your time and I want to make the best use of it. I don't necessarily want to belabor each of those records. Uh, I, I am utterly fascinated and legitimately love the something for everybody record. I love something for everybody. That was a return to form. It's, it's, well, I know I already said that the most underrated record is Oh No, It's Devo, and I'll stand by that assessment, but I think the second most underrated is definitely that one. And yeah, I, I love the it conception. Never even, got, never even got 
like Warner's failed to bring that to market. It didn't even get it a chance. It didn't get a chance. And I love like like little things like oh the focus group says that people find blue to be a more soothing color, so we change yeah. energy domes to blue. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and the yeah, fact we that it's brick walled mastered too. It's like mastered like modern stuff. Like it, and it's 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 a, That's right. it's a good commitment to the bit, as I mentioned earlier. That it was, it's like yeah. if, for those that it's like a nice. Well, we Easter went egg. all the way. Yeah. We went all the way, and we were sending up modern marketing right. on purpose. You you uh, you allowed people to to vote on the on the track listing if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah I find that record to be fantastic and I'm I'm enjoy playing it for people because a lot of people just it missed them completely or they weren't aware of it or but it, it was somehow incredibly Devo but also of its time at at the same at the same time at the same place there's songs on there that i just love i mean i love don't shoot i'm a man i love fresh yep. i love uh, please baby please yep and and then if you thought beautiful world was dark folks then there's no place like home that makes beautiful world seem like a warm-up act yeah it's 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 pretty it's 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 good man that's that's a good record that doesn't get its due and you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that's going to be people's key takeaway from this, but I'm saying it right now. Pay attention to that record because it's good. Well, I, you know, in the in the age of COVID nineteen, I think radio should play uh, "No Place Like Home." Yeah, it's definitely an anthem of of the times, to be sure. Can you please tell us about Devo Two Because I find that so fascinating <laughs> and compelling <laughs> and hilarious. Well, that was Dada. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the guy from Hollywood Records said, hey, I want to repurpose Devo songs for kids. Do you have any ideas? And because I go, they're singing about pervy stuff and like really like dark subject matter. It's like like kid songs, really? I forgot. And he picked the songs, right? And and here uh, here's this, but here's the end of that story. I said, well, okay. I said, would you let me cast a kid's band you know just like it's the monkeys but it's it's going to be devo kids and then we'll right. do we'll do like animation and live action combined and it'll be like oh no it's devo except kids <laughs> and he goes great let's do it so i did all the work i i cast that band i even went on a five city tour with them they could really play uh, it went nowhere for two reasons. Disney had their, whatever it was called, high school rock or whatever they already had going on. Oh, right, yeah. And they didn't want this thing competing with it. And when they sent it up the chain of command to the suits, mm -hmm. the suits took a look at it and ordered a text of all the lyrics. That's when they decided to look at it, huh? <laughs> so it got pulled until we censored all the lyrics to their satisfaction, which killed it on TV right. in its time slot and just ruined ruined the ratings. Just it just they they they, they basically sabotaged the whole thing. But my favorite was when they go 
We our biggest problem here. They had so many problems. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say where did they begin? <laughs> they had a problem with uh, that's good. They have this lyric here: "Life's a bee without a buzz. It's going great till you get stung." We know what that means, man. <laughs> that, 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 they're talking about a drug deal. <laughs> you're getting a buzz, and you're cool until the cops pop you. Oh, really? I just got, we had guys in suits that were going ghetto on telling us that. Oh, yeah, you, uh, you, you, you nailed oh, us there. That, <laughs> you wrote that 40 years ago, and that's not what it meant. Yeah, not, like, sorry, you got to change that, right? But, and of course, we, we just said, we just made something really inane and stupid, but my favorite was the one that I solved for them, thinking they're never going to be so stupid as to let me do this. It was uncontrollable urge, and I go, listen, you can't have this uncontrollable urge. We know what that is. That's that's sex. So you've got to define the uncontrollable urge, right? Okay. We go, no, we never say it's sex. They go, that's the problem. It, every kid will know it's sex. You've got to, you've got to describe what that uncontrollable urge, right? Mm-hmm. Can you make it about junk food? That's even more Devo than the original. <laughs> no shit. Because they're selling junk food in the afternoon on the Disney Channel, yeah, right? Exactly. So I send I send a new chorus that says, before dinner and after lunch, I get a snack attack and I need to munch. And it's this thirteen year old girl that's sexy. Yeah. And they go, Great. My God! <laughs> so we got it, and that's what she said. Oh wow! I know. What 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 an incredible thing to have happen! And I, I like the you know ultimately at the time I was I found it well initially I found it upsetting because I didn't know yeah. like what it was and then yeah. then I was like oh no I think that, that they're in on this and like this is like okay this is the whole thing I'll I'll right. stick with it but the idea you're trying to go to a new demographic. Well, <laughs> sure. I mean, and and the idea that. Devo lives on, you know, without like the people that originally comprised the band, much in the same way that, you know, the Star Trek franchise has, you know, different characters with the J.J. Abrams version playing the same roles and things along those lines and franchising. You know, kids that age, in reality, you know, the mainstream culture, all they were listening to is filthy hip hop. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's who those kids were really listening to that. Right. So you could get them to listen to Devo songs. You know, in whatever year that was now, uh, 2004 or five or whatever. Yeah, that sounds about right, mid-2000s, yeah. uh, All the better, right? All the better. What a a crazy time. (laughs) What a crazy... uh, So around that same time, (laughs) Jihad Jerry? Yeah, well, you know. Uh, is, 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 is that the sum takeaway as well, well you know <laughs> well you know I, I, that was he didn't get the love um, I had to uh, I had a Twitter account and everything and I was getting death threats uh, either from Muslims or from real patriotic right wingers that wanted to kill me I thought a guy that was nearly 60 years old wearing a turban 
that was as jokey as Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs would never be something that people would misconstrue. I thought they'd be in on it because it said, mine is not a holy war. That's the name of the record, right? right? (laughs) And it was a vicious attack of, uh, you know, W's right-wing policies. I mean, there's a song about him uh, on on the record. Yeah. Well, hey, what's up? Well, hey, think about it this way: there, that band ISIS was around for a long time, well before That's true. the other ISIS. <laughs> so, yeah. Whoops. Suppose suppose it could be worse. Uh, Jerry, God, it's, it's it's so great talking to you. I I, I, I need to close things down. I, I do a couple things yeah, I want to get to. Yeah. I, do you hear last couple things? Do you hear any of the influence of what Devo's done in other bands and music? And by that, I mean, not sound alikes, but bands that take the same ethos behind music and that critical thinking and danger filled mindset. Well, you know, I have heard things that maybe aren't stylistically like Devo that I, I was envious of, uh, like, um, this is America. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's a very. That's absolutely a Devo style. I mean, just he's from becoming the same place. Yeah. Childish Gambino. Yeah, he is great. That was an amazing video too. Totally amazing. I mean, that's up there. And yeah, I've heard things. Yeah, year after year. I I loved uh, Andre 3000's uh, Hey Ya. That was that was fucking great. There's been so many. I've I still like um, what. Um, Nine Inch Nails does still, and, and there's a lot of bands that maybe aren't around or are not household names. Bands like you know Brainiac or Future of the Left, Melvins, things along those lines. That, I like that. I like those. I, I guess where I'm going with this is I would just personally like to extend a thank you for uh, paving the trail for all us freaks, nerds, and weirdos, and for making this music and living this life so that we can have a little small light in the darkness. That may or may not be a train in these dark times. Well, I, as a pioneer who got scalped, I really uh, appreciate you saying that to me. Thank you, Jerry Casale. Thank you so much, man. Bye bye. Next next time. Until next time. Holy crap! <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed that half as much as I did. I don't know if it'd be possible to enjoy it as much as I did, but (sighs) is this thing on? It's rare that I'm speechless. You all know that. (laughs) (laughs) Jerk Sally, everybody. you know <laughs> thanks for listening everybody PRF Radio Hours up next for live listeners this is going to your Transprotonic Reversal this is Jerry Casale oh my god RadioNeutron.com for the archives
Selena. So uh, here's on Radio Nope. It's uh, usually Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain, 5 p.m. Pacific. All the time these days. I've got. Get it where you get your podcast. 50,000 watts of power. Patreon.com slash Bertonic Reversal to get episodes quicker ahead of time. Thank you to everyone that's uh, been supporting the show. This microphone turns sound into electricity. We're all Devo. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Out on Route 128, dark and lonely. Stay safe. Take it easy. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now?
really broadcasting if there's no one there to receive? Got my radio. 